Welcome to the Nova Podcast. And I'd like to add my personal welcome to you, the listener, to this episode six of the pre-concert lecture series on the Nova Podcast. My name is Jeff Counts, and I am, for this last time this season, your host. I hope you have enjoyed these little historical vignettes about the music as much as I've had preparing them and talking to you about them. This concert is titled by the Nova Music Directors as Songs of Migration, and according to them, this music is all meant to celebrate music that crosses borders. And I think we're talking about not only intrepid human migrants, people who see borders as opportunities rather than barriers, but we're talking about Earth's true long-haul specialists. These are creatures, monarch butterflies, who cross incredible spans of time and distance in their migratory patterns. The places represented on this concert are Ukraine, Syria, Czechia, and of course, the natural world. Let's start first with Ukrainian-born composer Viktor Kosenko. When I say Ukrainian-born, what I mean is that Viktor Kosenko was born a Ukrainian, but his birthplace was actually St. Petersburg, Russia. He was what we might call today a military brat. His dad was in the service. From a very early age, young Viktor showed quite a bit of musical talent, a huge amount of musical talent, actually. Reportedly, when he was a little older, he could listen to his sister play a Beethoven sonata and then repeat it essentially from memory, without even having seen the score. He had hoped to go to school at the Warsaw Conservatory, where his dad was stationed, but World War I necessitated their departure from Poland. So he went instead to the St. Petersburg Conservatory, at that point Petrograd, and there, again, displayed his incredible memory and sight-reading capabilities by grabbing a score, glancing at it, setting it aside, and then performing the piece nearly perfectly. Upon graduation, Kosenko got a job in the Ukrainian city of Zhitomir. He was on the faculty of the music school there for about a decade, and he eventually relocated to Kiev. But a couple of very important things happened while he was in Zhitomir. First of which is that he lived in appalling poverty while he was there. And many theorize that that had a lot to do with the kidney cancer that eventually took his life at the age of 42. But the more important thing was the introduction to Angelina Kanep, Victor's wife-to-be. He fell deeply in love with her. She already had two children from a previous marriage, but that did not matter to him. She was clearly the one. And their marriage was one of incredible devotion over the two few years they had together. Kosenko's music was the intersection of late-style romantic and nationalist traditions that were happening at the time. Though there are no direct folk references in his music, the modal fingerprints of Ukrainian musical tradition are in abundance throughout his catalog. That catalog included some 100 works for solo piano, many of which he dedicated to his wife, Angelina. The three pieces, Opus 9, is part of that group. He wrote them in 1921, and they are a beautifully heartfelt and touching collection. Next on the program is a work by London-based American composer Arlene Sierra. If you've been living in Utah for the past year and paying attention to what the Utah Symphony is up to, you'll know that Arlene has been an artist in association with that prestigious institution for the last season, premiering works and doing second performances of important works of her. If you've been paying attention, you'll also notice that one of the more common themes throughout her music, especially recently, is the natural world. 
There's a quote on Sierra's website about this inclination. It has to do with a piece she wrote in 2017 called The Nature Symphony. And according to that website, The Nature Symphony was, quote, the largest statement so far in a series of works that explore concepts from the natural world. As with the pieces Urban Birds, Colmena, and Butterflies Remember a Mountain, it is the mechanics and processes of nature, rather than a simple reflection or meditation, that form the basis for Sierra's compositional approach in that work and others. Third on that list of references is the work Butterflies Remember a Mountain, which will be performed on this Nova concert. It's a piano trio based on a study that Sierra found on monarch butterfly migration. I did a little digging myself, and I found that article. It's from Gizmodo, and it was written by Esther Inglis Arkell, and it talks about how monarch butterflies who have a migration that takes them from southern Canada all the way to central Mexico, a huge distance. It's a difficult journey that takes many generations to complete. No one butterfly actually gets to do the whole thing themselves, and they accomplish this by DNA-level encoded memory passed down over millennia. And one feature of their migration is this really strange and sort of non sequitur turn they make near Lake Superior. And it is believed that in that deep recess of reminiscence that they have, they recall a mountain that used to be there in prehistoric times. And they still make the turn to go around that mountain. It's an incredible bit of geologic time written into the blood of these creatures. And it's a wonderful title for a piece, obviously, Butterflies Remember a Mountain. Sierra has structured the three movements of this work almost haiku-like from those words. The first movement, butterfly. The second movement, remember. And then the third movement, a mountain. And each movement reflects not only the meaning of their journey, but how those words themselves present evocative possibilities in musical language. I hinted at the beautiful message of the last paragraph in this article in my program note for the piece. But I want to read it to you here so you can get a sense of what I think is the true message of this piece, the fact that timelessness can be viewed in many different ways. I quote, This puts a new spin on how we look at geology and geography. We think of mountains as structures that are nearly ageless. They stand while successive generations of animals change and evolve around them. Perhaps not this time, though. This time, butterflies kept up their same pattern while the world changed under them, the mountain wearing away or being destroyed. This time, Flesh outlasted stone. We move now to the U.S. premiere of a brass quintet by Syrian-American composer Karim Roustam. Roustam has a robust career with awards throughout the industry, including an Emmy nomination. He's written for orchestras and chamber music ensembles, writes incredibly well for voice. This piece is called Tesserae, and his program note explains things way better than I could, so I'm going to quote from it liberally. The word tesserae is the plural of tessera, and it's defined as, number one, a small square tile of stone, glass, etc., used in mosaics, and number two, a small square of bone, wood, or the like, used in ancient times as a token, tally, or ticket. The brass quintet in this piece is asked to embody both of those definitions. In the first movement, where the creative process is explored through music, the brass quintet takes this idea of a mosaic in that instead of stone or glass, there are notes that make a four-part square, providing Roustam the opportunity as a composer to depict how these little bits can make up a whole. It's a true sum-of-the-parts exploration. The second movement, Andalusian Poem, is where the second definition of tesserae comes into play, the idea of a ticket or a token. Here's what he says about it. 
The other meaning of tesserae, that of a ticket or token, embodies the emotional side of the work, which is the expression of something that every composer or creative person must ask with each new output. Is this new piece acceptable as a ticket or a token? May I pass through? The music of the second movement is based on a choral setting from an 11th century poet, Um al-Kiram, that Rostam himself set. And I want to read that poem to you because I think it's just gorgeous. People, can you stop and wonder at the gains of love's ardor? Without it, the moon of the dark would not descend from the highest horizons to the earth. It's enough for the one I love that if he abandons me, my heart will follow him. That translation comes courtesy of Ahmad al-Malah. This piece was written in 2015 for brass players from the West Eastern Divan Orchestra. And if you don't know about that ensemble, it's one of the most beautiful hidden subtexts in this entire project. And I want to read to you from the website of that institution to give you a sense of how this group was created and why. Quote, The origins of the West Eastern Divan lie in conversations between its founders, Edward Said and Daniel Barenboim. Over the course of their great friendship, the Palestinian author and scholar and Israeli conductor-pianist discussed ideas on music, culture, and humanity. In their exchanges, they realized the urgent need for an alternative way to address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The opportunity to do this came when Baron Worm and Said initiated the first workshop using their experience as a model. This evolved into the West Eastern Divan Orchestra that global audiences know today. A beautiful way to imagine borders being more porous and more freely available as exchanges of ideas, rather than hard and fast limits on human interaction. The program closes with the Opus 97 string quintet of Antonin Dvorak. And though it does not have a nickname that stamps it as such, it is one of the pieces he wrote while he was in America. It's one of his American works. Dvorak was invited by Jeanette Thurber in 1892 to be the director of the brand new National Conservatory of Music in America. And part of her agenda for him was to help America create its own uniquely folk-based compositional school. She knew how closely his music identified with the struggle to free Bohemia and Moravia from the domination of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I think she was anxious to see America, at least culturally, freed from its European domination. His visit here was big news on both sides of the Atlantic, and he took the job with great seriousness and made several observations that are still widely discussed today, both in how prescient they were and how far we still have to go to fully realize them. He believed that the future of the American school, the American sound was be based on the music of black spirituals and Native Americans. We have hardly lived up to that particular dream. There's a wonderful organization called the Dvorak American Heritage Association. It's based in New York, where he spent the great bulk of his three years during his residency. And it's a wealth of knowledge and facts about his visit and accomplishments on our shores. They have a great website. I encourage you to go take a look at that. One part of the story that's, I think, most interesting and certainly most pertinent for this piece is that Dvorak spent a fair amount of time while he was in America in Spillville, Iowa. Why Spillville, you ask? Well, there was a sizable Czech expat community there. And Dvorak, probably feeling a little bohemian homesickness, wanted to be around food and language that he recognized. So he spent 
a good portion of his time there and wrote two very important chamber works there, the American String Quartet and the Opus 97 String Quintet on this program. Unlike the String Quartet, the String Quintet is a non-standard formation that is usually separated into three categories. Viola quintets, which means a string quartet with an extra viola added. Cello quintets, you guessed it, a string quartet with an extra cellist. And other, often with an extra bass added to the string quartet or an extra violin added. This particular piece is of the viola variety, and you don't have to listen very hard to hear some of the Spillville experiences embedded therein. Among the quintessentially American things he witnessed while he was there amongst his compatriots was a Native American medicine show, and the rhythms and melodic intricacies of their music can be heard in not only this work, but also the string quartet from that time that stole the American nickname. Dvorak's influence on us is still being felt. Some of the teachers that he trained at the conservatory ended up being mentors to Copeland, Gershwin, even Duke Ellington. And though we have, as I said before, not yet fully realized his vision for us, his string quintet gets close. And I think as an example of paying close, quiet, respectful attention to the people around you, it's an inspiration for everyone. The four works on this program imagine, I believe, a world without borders, and it's beautiful. I'd like to leave this discussion thinking again about those butterflies. They don't know the difference between Canada, the United States, or Mexico. They just know that where this lake is, there used to be a mountain. And just to be safe, they're going to fly around it even though they don't see it. And despite warnings, both ancient and modern, they keep flying, no matter what. Even if they can't finish, they pass on their knowledge to the next generation. I hope these podcasts have brought a little something extra to the experience of hearing these works live at the fantastic Nova Chamber Music series. This is the last time I'll be with you this season, but I do look forward to next year and perhaps continuing these discussions in person. Until then, I'm Jeff Counts. Enjoy the concert. Nova has received generous support from the Utah Legislature and Utah Division of Arts and Museums, the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation, Salt Lake County Zoo Arts and Parks, George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation, Isotope, Salt Lake City Arts Council, the Cultural Vision Fund, Dominion Energy, Rocky Mountain Power Foundation, the Alice M. Ditson Fund of Columbia University, and the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music. Don't forget to subscribe and share the Nova podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening.